Hi, I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Batya Angar Sargon is a liberal, a self-proclaimed left-wing populist. She's the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek. Before that, she was the opinion editor of The Forward, America's largest Jewish weekly publication. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many, many other media outlets. She earned her doctorate in the 18th century novel from the University of California, Berkeley. And so perhaps it was unexpected that she, of all people, would have written a book called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. But a far cry from a right-wing attack on journalism, her book is a carefully researched, meticulously documented, well-written history of American news media and where it started to seriously go wrong. Batya, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I have wanted to interview you for so long. Welcome to In These Times. That is so kind of you, Rabbi. I am so honored to be here with you. I've been listening to the podcast and really enjoying it. Of course, I I really admire you and all the work that you do. So thank you so much for having me. Terrific. Before we get to the uh, issues themselves, I wanted to ask you, you were the opinion editor at The Forward, and now you're the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek. Was that just a career move, or was there some ideological interest that you had? Tell us about the transition. Um, Yeah, it was a bigger platform, so it seemed like a smart move. I obviously preyed on it, but it just seemed like, yeah, it was just a bigger platform. Yeah. Because the forward under your editorial leadership was just fantastic. It was so relevant and just just terrific. You did an amazing job there. Thank you. Because I was the only opinion editor, it was very different. Now, there's, I work at a place where there's five of us. I don't feel personally responsible for everything that's published. I only feel personally responsible for what I'm publishing and making sure that I'm contributing and pulling my weight and that, you know, it's well-rounded and balanced and we're getting opinion from all sides. But at the forward, because it was just me, I felt like the mandate very heavily on my shoulders to represent the full breadth of opinion that was legitimate and relevant to the Jewish community. And the intensity of that was something that I truly cherished. And I don't know that I'll, part of what happens is when you move up, there's sort of a bigger team. And I don't know that I'll ever feel that experience, that intensity again. And I, it was really an honor. You know, we Jews have a habit of being quite intense. And we take those (laughs) issues in the Jewish newspapers very seriously. Apropos, what, what is your area of responsibility? We have three left-wing editors and two right-wing editors, but we're each encouraged to pursue our interests and get stuff that's relevant to what we're seeing, what we're thinking about. My focus is very much on, I try to elevate a lot of working class voices. I consider myself a left-wing populist, so I try to get opinion that reflects that. I have a lot of black writers, particularly more moderate black writers who are sort of much more reflective of where the black community's opinion is at than the people that you will read in the New York Times or here on MSNBC. I'm very interested in the sort of populist realignment. So I'll run conservatives who are more populist. Whatever comes into the inbox that sort of floats our boats, one of us will grab and say, oh, this is so interesting. I love a counterintuitive take. I love a take from somebody who you don't usually hear from. And I I feel, as you read my books, you know that I feel that the working class has been cut out of the conversation in America. And that's 80% of Americans don't have their voices heard. So you'll hear their voices at Newsweek. Mm. 
Before we get to the book itself, I'm looking at your dedication on the book, and I just love it. I don't know who Zoe is. I can assume who Zoe is, but what especially grabs me is that your dedication is a little bit in English and mostly in Hebrew, and some of the language is biblical. So can you just tell us about the background of that dedication? Um, Zoe's my husband. <laughs> And the dedication reads, Rei Ahuvi Ezer Kenegdi. And it says, Ezer Kenegdo, that God created Eve as a helpmeet for Adam. It really means a helpmeet against him. And the commentators say they have different explanations for it. But my favorite one is the most helpful person is the person who opposes you when you're wrong or who stands up to you and who makes you defend your positions. And my husband and I don't agree about a lot politically. And it's the most incredible thing to have somebody who's always going to call you on things. He reads everything I write before I publish it. And so I know going out there that I've had the strongest critique possible, which gives you a lot of confidence. No one's ever asked me about the dedication before. <laughs> I love the idea that it's in Hebrew. Most of your readers, I think, by definition, really are not going to understand the Hebrew. It was so unique. I've read dedications in Hebrew in Hebrew books or books published in Israel. But I've never seen it in, uh, you know, a mainstream, big American publishing house. I have to say, I don't know that if I had... My publisher is a conservative, even though I'm on the left because I couldn't get any liberal or left-wing publishers to publish my book. I'm thrilled with the publisher. They never hesitated. They never even asked me what this said. They just got it done and in a very beautiful way. But I don't know if I had gone with a liberal publisher, if they would have let me write my dedication in Hebrew. I mean, given what I know about the liberal publishing world right now, I have reason to suspect maybe they wouldn't have. So so that's a good segue, segue. into <laughs> what we need to talk about. Your book, which got so much publicity, is called Bad News, and the subtitle is How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. You call yourself a left-wing populist. You referred to yourself as left-wing twice already. You're pretty tough in this book on left-wingers and on liberals in general. So tell us, first of all, what do you mean by woke? When you use the term woke, what do you mean in the sense of woke media? And what is your central critique? So the word woke comes from black slang from the 70s, when it used to refer to being aware of systemic racism, of the ways in which the state still perpetrates racism against Black Americans. And obviously, I think that's extremely important, but there's no longer really a partisan divide over issues like racial equality, over issues like criminal justice reform, which Republicans have been at the forefront of. President Trump released 5,000 Black men from prison with the First Step Act, many of whom Joe Biden put in prison with the 1994 crime bill. And in the wake of George Floyd's horrific murder, the last police reform bill that was put forward by Republicans and was filibustered by Democrats for not including qualified immunity, which is a very small reason from my point of view to block police reform. On education reform, conservatives are often at the forefront of trying to meet Black parents where they're at. So there's just no longer a partisan divide on the racial justice issues. There's now 94% approval for interracial marriage, including in the South. 
the North is 95% and the West is 97% approval for interracial marriage. That's consensus. So yes, there are still issues that we need to address. Yes, I couldn't say we've solved the issue of systemic or state-sponsored racism, but there's no longer a partisan divide over needing to get there and what's necessary. So I think that the word woke used to refer to something. Sociologists have now used the word woke to refer to a phenomenon that took place around 2015, which is when white liberals started to express to pollsters opinions on race that were much further to the left. I don't even want to say to the left because it's not really left, but much more academic than the views that the average Black or Hispanic American had. And they wanted to describe this phenomenon where white liberals became different than the people they're like supposed to be advocating on behalf of in their views on race. For example, if you would ask them, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? America's institutions are so deeply racist that the only way to resolve that is to raise them to the ground and rebuild them from the bottom up. This became something that white liberals were much more likely to say, I agree with that, than blacks and Hispanics. And that's a curious phenomenon, right? And it's a recent phenomenon. I'll give you another example. There's a 2018 study out of Yale that found that there was a difference between how white liberals and white conservatives speak to black and Hispanic Americans. White liberals dumb down their vocabulary. And white conservatives don't. So white liberals, when they speak to other white people, they speak in a certain register. And when they encounter black or Hispanic Americans, they dumb down their vocabulary instinctively. And white conservatives don't do that. And that's a very curious phenomenon because it's racist, <laughs> but it's being done so obviously from a position of I need to help this person. This person is beneath me on some scale of education or privilege or economics, and I must even the playing field for them. That impulse is the defining characteristic of the progressive movement. So when I use the word woke, I'm using it how these sociologists use it to describe that phenomenon, not things like ending police brutality, ending mass incarceration, equal opportunity for Black children, intergenerational poverty. I mean, that I'm using it the way the sociologists do to refer to that thing, that impulse in white progressives that makes them see people of color as beneath them on some kind of privileged scale and then ascribe absolute morality to that sort of the less powerful powerful position. And do you, in the way that you use the term woke, do you consider that to be a left-wing philosophy? And is it a liberal philosophy? And what's the distinction, if any? It's the building blocks of the progressive movement. It's the bricks and mortars from which the progressive platform has been built up. So the word woke is mostly used by right-wingers to critique the left. They like to say all Democrats are like this. They aren't. Specifically, Black and Hispanic Americans are not woke. It's a specific phenomenon that seems to have taken hold among very educated white progressives. And that's not surprising. I mean, a lot of this is stuff that they critical race theory, the idea that power should be the most important thing that you judge between people and that that should replace morality. I've been looking at this for a long time, ever since I was introduced to classic liberal philosophy. I consider myself a liberal. Of course, I'm a liberal rabbi or a reform rabbi. I find elements of 
this progressive philosophy, actually not to be liberal, because liberals believe in tolerance, we believe in free speech. We sincerely believe in the value of debate. We believe, and this is something very Jewish as well, that the way we get closer to truth, there's no absolute truth in human affairs, but the way we get closer to truth and we build progress in society is through disagreement. It's the basis of democratic life, of modern democracies, which I always understood to be one reason why Jews do so well in free societies and in democratic societies, because it's inherent in our tradition itself. From the very beginning, Judaism was an astonishing tradition of intellectual pluralism. One, do you agree with that perspective on liberalism? And two, is this left-wing progressivism that you're describing consistent with liberal philosophy, or is it in some way antagonistic and an opponent of liberalism? Yeah, it's definitely an opponent of liberalism. I mean, in my book, I write that it's anti-democratic because it consists of silencing people you disagree with. I'll just give you one example. So Ron DeSantis had his famous, it was called the Don't Say Gay Bill by the media. The bill was actually called Parental Rights in Education, and it said you can't teach sexual identity to kids under the age of eight, and you have to inform parents if a child starts to transition. The media cast this as a deeply homophobic bill, but the truth is the bill got nearly 60% support from Democrats. <laughs> so the media tried to silence this as bigotry when the truth is that not only did the vast majority of Republicans support it, but the majority of Democrats were on board with this. And per the media, they should have had their voices silenced. I mean, 80% of Floridians view the media decided was outside of the acceptable realm. I think that's exactly what you're describing. It's not just that they don't believe in debate, but that they use an allegation of the most horrific thing you could call someone a bigot, a racist, a homophobe, in order to make your views not just silent, but outside of what's acceptable. And what we saw in mainstream media outlets like the New York Times, these huge legacy outlets that used to be the best of journalism is... Even, it's not just that these views aren't bigoted. If you simply express a view that even five years ago, the average Democratic politician would believe, that could be grounds for firing, for dismissal. And the absolute cowardice of the leadership class to stand up to these woke mobs on Twitter, it's astonishing. And I totally agree with you. This is not what liberalism is supposed to be. But you know, as somebody who was in that mindset for a long time, I could so remember what it felt like. The danger that these opinions posed because you knew that if you became convinced by them, you would lose all of your friends, right? You would lose social standing. You would become an outcast. You would have people who you had done enormous favors for denounce you on Twitter without a second thought as a bigot. It's really astonishing the pressure that puts on you to not allow yourself to consider other opinions because they are so socially dangerous to you. I think it's very anti-democratic, very anti-liberal, very anti-Jewish. And that's why it's so heartbreaking to see this kind of thinking taking hold in certain corners of Jewish life. So to the extent that what you're describing is in fact the reality, it's quite dangerous to the democratic fabric and to liberty. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's very sad because 
You know, Hannah Arendt has this great quote about how um, sometimes a movement will come along that doesn't really want equality. It just wants to reverse the personnel of who has the power and who doesn't have the power. And I think there was um, a really good example of that. So a story circulated about how a BYU, I believe it was a volleyball player, was called a racial slur at a game. And the media went crazy. They ran with this. This is so horrific. Of course, it's horrific for anybody to experience that. But an exhaustive investigation found that it simply hadn't happened. There was footage from the exact place that it was claimed that it came from for the whole game. And it just didn't happen. It was another Jussie Smollett hoax. Whereas we had a story where students from a university in Oregon were screaming, F the Mormons. F the Mormons throughout a game, of course, saying the word itself, bigotry against religious minorities like Mormons or Jews doesn't count because Jews are considered proximate to whiteness. Mormons are considered white. And so hatred and bigotry against them is not considered real because it doesn't carry the same burden. And of course, that that shouldn't be the goal. The goal shouldn't be that you can't express bigotry towards this group. It should be that bigotry is treated as bad across the board. And there's just so many examples of this from Jews who got attacked throughout 2019, 2020. Hundreds and hundreds of Haredi Jews bashed up on the streets of New York and nobody cared. Nobody would say a word about it. So when you have a situation where young black kids are beating up Haredi Jews, nobody will talk about it because it doesn't compute in the progressive mindset that measures things based on race and then based on power. Abati, I understand that one of your central uh, contentions in the book is that you believe that the media has deteriorated because what was once a working class profession has become an elite profession. Did I state that correctly? And could you expand on that? Yeah, you know, journalism used to be a working class trade. It was like a very low status job. Basically, the kind of person who became a journalist was the kid who sat in the back of the classroom, cracking wise, undermining the teacher's authority. He was so anti-authoritarian, he couldn't go with the rest of his friends to join the factory line because he was really bad at, you know, listening to what people told him to do. And that was very dangerous. So instead, he'd become a journalist and he'd go to Washington and demand justice on behalf of his friends who were now factory workers or linemen or truck drivers or what have you. It was considered a sort of working class job. Most journalists didn't get a college degree. You learned the job on the job. And there was a total status revolution throughout the 20th century. So the turning point was really the 70s. And you know this because JFK worked on the Harvard Crimson when he was at Harvard. But he would never have dreamed of becoming a journalist full time because it was too low status. And he was on this upward climb, right? He was this part of this new meritocratic elite by the 70s and 80s that it changed because of things like Watergate, which portrayed actually the movie, <laughs> All the President's Men more than Watergate itself, which portrayed journalism as this like super glamorous endeavor where a bunch of, you know, sexy sex pots could take down this like super unpopular president. That really gave the profession a lot of glamour to where the science of the elite started to think, oh, maybe I'll go into journalism instead. So you had this status revolution. By the 80s and 90s, journalists as a class were much more highly educated, much more affluent, and much more liberal than their fellow Americans, much less religious. And that's only amped up as the industry collapsed with the advent of the internet. Now most journalism jobs are internet journalism jobs, digital journalism jobs. Of course, those are only attracting and only hiring from elite universities, but also legacy institutions. The New York Times 
NPR, the Washington Post, these are like liberal progressive outlets. They take 75% of their interns from the top 1% of universities. By the way, those entry-level jobs pay very little, but you have to live in New York City. You have to live in D.C. 75% of journalism jobs are now on the coast in the most expensive American cities, which means like a working class kid, there's no way they can live in New York City on $35,000 a year. That's just not doable anymore. So it means that the kids going into this, they have parents who are subsidizing them at the early stages of of their career. And if they can hang on until their 40s and 50s, they will actually be in the top 10% by the end. So they'll be making, you know, north of $120,000, $130,000 a year. So the average is very low. But that just proves to you how elite the industry has become. And the more elite the institution, the more woke it is. And that's the argument I make in the book is that this sort of woke moral panic around race and gender is really the last stage of journalists' abandonment of the working class that they used to belong to. They used to cover the working class because they used to belong to it. And now they see everything through the lens of the elites. Journalists go to the same universities as the politicians they later cover, as the tech billionaires that they later cover. They live in Tony neighborhoods in their later years. They live in the most expensive American cities. And as a result, they see things from the perspective of power rather than powerlessness, and that's how they cover things. I read in your book that it's not only the philosophy that they bring, but your contention is also they have economic interests in covering what they're covering, that it's not simply a question of they bring this philosophy to them, but there are real economic interests in them pursuing this direction. Yes, although, uh, I'll put it this way, I think they're wrong about a lot of things, but I, I think that a lot of the errors of the progressive point of view stem from good intentions. They really believe that, like, defunding the police, they really believe that that is how you help Black people as opposed to believing the truth, which is you could see by talking to any cop or walking into any neighborhood where there aren't rich journalists living, that all this does is expose the poorest black people to the most unimaginable violence. That's obvious, but I don't think that they're cynical. I think they truly have bought into this nonsense. However, I don't think they would have allowed themselves to be convinced by this nonsense if it wasn't in their economic interest. And you can really see this on topics like immigration, where as recently as 2015, Bernie Sanders was telling Ezra Klein that Open Borders is a Koch brothers proposal to get cheap labor into this country. And you fast forward to 2020 and any person who thinks you should be policing the border to the progressives is a racist. How did that happen? It's like a 180 on immigration. That's totally about who the Democrats now see as their base, which is affluent liberal elites who benefit economically from immigration at the expense of the working class who pays for it, especially the black working class who's paid the most for mass immigration. I don't think that they're lying about feeling compassion for the people crossing the border. I think they truly feel it. I feel it too. I mean, it's impossible not to feel that. People crossing with their children, it's impossible not to feel for them. But they don't then take the next step and say, okay, I have compassion for these people, but there's a larger question at stake here. They allow themselves to dictate based on that compassion, which ends up actually enforcing huge amounts of cruelty on their fellow Americans, on their neighbors who are less affluent. They can't see that because it's not in their economic interest to see that. In straight up reporting, do you feel that journalists view their role in the same way they may have viewed their role, say, a generation or two ago to report the facts, just the facts? Or do you feel that they 
want to and need to pursue an ideological agenda, maybe in part not only because of what motivated them to come into journalism in the first place, but because their understanding of what their readers want. Here's the thing, Rabbi. Like, the era of straight reporting was a little bit of an anomaly. At the turn of the 20th century, right, New York City had so many communist newspapers that you could be a communist and have eight newspapers that you would never dream of reading because it was the wrong brand of communism, right? All of the publications were extremely partisan, like deeply partisan, but they were partisan on behalf of the working class and the poor. They were partisan on behalf of the masses and they were competing for the masses. The New York Times showed up and realized, oh, wow, like nobody's competing for the elites. (laughs) We're going to go for them. And they did that and they made a very um, good business model on that. But what the elites wanted for much of the 20th century was straight news reporting. Like they would have been embarrassed to get a newspaper that their neighbor, the Republican, wouldn't have been able to also read and appreciate the news reporting. It would have been embarrassing to be so partisan that your news was inflected by who you vote for. So even though the New York Times was always a liberal newspaper, it held that in check out of deference to what its elite readership wanted. Today's elites want to have their confirmation bias reaffirmed. So... I think you're portraying a situation here in America that we're actually not as divided on key issues as we often are impressed or as we glean from uh, media outlets. Is that right? A hundred percent. It is total wishful thinking that America is on the verge of a civil war. We've never been more united than we are right now on the most important issues that this nation was founded on ever. It is wishful thinking that your Republican neighbors, that they are bigots. That That's just wishful thinking on the part of people who want to win without having to put in the work and convince people. It's just simply not the case anymore. You look at support for interracial marriage, support for gay marriage, support for criminal justice reform. Abortion is like most Americans agree on abortion. It's just nuts. And the reason we believe we're divided is because people are making a lot of money off of trying to convince us that we are. Every time you hate somebody on the Internet, every time you feel hatred for a stranger on the Internet, someone just made a million dollars. We're literally being played by elites who get power and make money off of this. I want to bring all of this to uh, the Jews and to Israel, the American Jewish community and and the media in Israel. I imagine that the critique that you have for journalism here in the United States is the same critique of American journalists when they cover the Middle East because I kind of joke about this, but there's partially serious and there's a bit of (laughs) even resentment when I say this. Most American Jews, they glean their understanding of Judaism And I still, I read the New York Times every day. I think it's a great paper on many levels. And I oversee a synagogue on the Upper West Side. It's an historic synagogue. There are about 2,500 souls that belong to this synagogue. I would say 80 to 90 to maybe 95% of them read the New York Times every day. And their impressions about what's going on in the world is informed in a very significant way by what they read in the New York Times. It's not the only source of information, but it's a significant source of information. And oh, it's- is that really true? Like people are, you think people get their sense of what Judaism is from reading the New York Times? I do. I think people develop their perspective on Israel. I think that's part of our problem, by the way, and it's, part, it's connected to the phenomenon that you've been describing now, that day after day, year after year, people have been impressed about what Israel is and what it represents from what they see in the media. Of course, most American Jews haven't even been to Israel. So what do you think people like 
me, people like our congregants, perhaps people like you, should know about when we read a report from the New York Times or from any other media outlet about, say, conflagration in Gaza? The New York Times hates us. I mean, they've hated Israel from the beginning. There's a whole section in my book about this. The Ox family, the custodians of the New York Times, they've been the publishers for over a century, they didn't believe that Jews were a nation. They thought Judaism was a religion. And this is the kind of thing that when Palestinians say it, we rightly say, that's, I'm sorry, that's that's borderline bigoted. Like that's, you can't deny our history. Like you can't deny that we're a people, right? But the people who started the New York Times didn't believe this. They were deeply insecure about their Jewishness. They were deeply terrified that the New York Times would be seen as a Jewish paper. And so they went out of their way to constantly portray Jews as perpetrators and Palestinians as victims, even before there was a state. You should see how they covered the massacre in Hebron in 1929. They blamed the Jews for it. It's appalling. The New York Times buried the Holocaust for the five years that it was going on. They mentioned Jews on the front page six times. They refused to admit that Hitler's victims were Jews because they didn't want to be seen as doing what they called special pleading. This is dark stuff. And it carries on till today. My parents' neighbor, their best friends, their son was pictured in the New York Times being beaten up by a mob of Arabs. And the New York Times caption said a Palestinian boy being beaten by an, a Jewish, by an Israeli policeman because a Druze policeman had dragged him from a mob of Arabs who were trying to kill him. And the New York Times, this was in, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and the New York Times literally couldn't compute a Jewish victim. They took a Jewish victim and turned him into a Palestinian and took the perpetrator and made him a Jew. <laughs> Are you saying that, first of all, there's a specific legacy in the New York Times that New York Times correspondents are aware of and yeah. they kind of are encouraged, whether subtly or expressly, to continue that legacy? Or are you saying there's something specific? There's a specific hang-up on the Jews in addition to the wokeness that you've been describing. The line I think I use in the book is that when it comes to Jews, the New York Times was always woke. Like it always had a problem seeing Jews when they were being victimized. And that carried on. I mean, you really saw this with the COVID coverage, just the demonization of Orthodox Jews in ways that were so inappropriate. And if you hold that back to back with how they treated other minority communities that were struggling with the pandemic, you'll see just how atrocious this is. I think for liberal Jews, it's very hard to recognize when from Jews are being targeted. Often I hear liberal Jews siding with the people who are sort of demonizing them, but Orthodox Jews are the Jews of the Jews today, right? Like they are the ones bearing the burden of looking the part while the rest of us pass. And what they experience as a result of it is atrocious. And often they don't complain about it. If you ask them why, they'll say like, this is our legacy, right? You talk to Satmar mm -hmm. Jews. Exactly. Satmar Jews are not surprised that they're being beaten up in the streets because they don't never knew a time when they weren't. But we should be at, on their side. So, yes, when it comes to the Jews, the New York Times has always had a problem. Wokeness fits right in with that because it gives you a logic with which to justify hating Jews. It gives you a legitimate reason for hating Israel and hating the Jews. There's leftists like me who can see why wokeness is bad in America. As soon as they talk about Israel, they use the wokest language. And I'm saying this as somebody who has deep connections in the Palestinian community, both in Gaza and in the West Bank and in Israel itself. I mean, I have 
very, very deep connections there. And the way that people talk about that conflict here is just ridiculous. It's embarrassing and childish. But what people used to try to do is they would picture a bipartisan readership and think, okay, how can I tell this story in a way that is fair to all sides? The New York Times reporter now is picturing his woke fellow reporters in the newsroom who are on Twitter and who, if he says anything they don't like, will go and get him fired. And and we've just seen that play out over and over and over again. And so they live in terror of Twitter finding fault with what they're saying. And so you can expect to only see stories that highlight Jewish wrongdoing and only see stories that highlight Palestinian victimhood. Now, I'm on the left. I think Israel has much more power than the Palestinians and thus much more responsibility to do the right thing and to find a way to settle the issues there. But at the same time, to act like the Palestinians have no agency is despicable. What happens now in woke discourse is they compare Palestinians and the Palestinian resistance movement to Dr. King's legacy, to the struggle for black rights in America. And I find that to be the most disgusting thing you can imagine. I mean, to compare Dr. King, a nonviolent activist, with a movement that included the second intifada, I mean, it's appalling, but that's what woke logic does. That's how it works. There's no difference between the two because you have oppressed people here and oppressed people there. And I think that there's a real crisis of moral authority in the Jewish community and Jews really need to find their voices and stop paying obeisance to this worldview that hates you. We have a lot of Jews in that movement too. What would you say to them? Do you have a specific message to them? First of all, I think there's a lot of people who silence that feeling inside of themselves when they know something is wrong because the person saying it has darker skin color and thus they think is more oppressed. They need to remember that 2018 Yale study. Every time you silence what you know is right from wrong because the skin color of the person who's talking is darker than yours. I mean, that's Nazi logic. I'm sorry, but that is racist. And those people don't even represent the communities that they claim to be speaking on behalf of. They don't even represent the black and brown communities in America. They are a tiny elite that the white liberal establishment allows through because they're saying what they want to hear and they're distracting from the real divide. Stop hating your fellow Americans. Stop letting yourself off the hook. Stop shortcutting your way from having good policies and good positions that will actually help the disenfranchised by doing the things that make you feel holier than everybody else and you feel good about yourselves but actually have no impact on the ground. No anti-Zionist will ever have any impact on the ground in the Middle East because Israel's never going to go away. So they are completely irrelevant to anything that might actually help Palestinians. Find people who actually are going to have an impact. And you know what? Those are people who are speaking in a way that other people can learn from them and other people can hear from them and other people can change their minds. They're in the work of persuasion. They're not in the work of humiliation or calling people out or any of this nonsense. Wow. It's been such a pleasure to spend time with you. This has been a great treat for me. I look forward to continuing these conversations. Good luck on this book. I know it's been out for a while. Keep writing. You've got a distinctive voice. Keep up the good work. And thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. One of the great joys of having a podcast is the opportunity to speak with, learn from, and be inspired by so many remarkable people. When we are exposed to different individuals who have different experiences from our own, and they are deep, sensitive, intelligent, articulate, and passionate, whether or not we agree with them on all things or even many things, they always energize us, they challenge us, they make us think, 
and broaden our horizons. We become impassioned by their passion. This is Batya Angar Sargon. I admire people like her. She is an out-of-the-box thinker. Non-cookie-cutter people are compelling to me. I like internal critics, people who see the flaws on their own side, on their own team, and offer constructive observations and critique. I love speaking with journalists, especially self-proclaimed leftist liberal journalists, as Batya describes herself, who do not hesitate to speak about the inadequacies of their own industry. I'm drawn to them for three primary reasons. First, it takes enormous courage to criticize your own, especially in our current environment that silos us into tribes. I like people with courage, who are willing to take risks, whose convictions outweigh the pain of public opprobrium. And those of us in public life know that the attacks that hurt the most are the ones from our own side. If someone is willing to look deeply at their own side's flaws, that takes special character, special fortitude, because they know that the Twitter storm will soon erupt and the virtual mob will gather. They'll be accused of betrayal or abandonment. They persist nonetheless, because honesty is more important to them than their own job security or social circles. Second, I'm drawn to people like Batya because I want to hear their critique. They do it out of a sense of responsibility. It is often not an act of betrayal at all, but exactly the opposite. They criticize because of their deep respect and even love for their vocation. We get better in our own personal lives, and society advances through open debate and criticism by speaking truth as we understand the truth and shedding light on moral inadequacies. It's not that I necessarily agree with every critic. For example, as I said in our discussion, recognizing many of the shortfalls of, say, the New York Times, still, I'm an avid daily reader. I can't imagine not reading the Times. And I appreciate that some of their professionals and others throughout the industry are amazing reporters who try their best and dignify the profession of journalism. Still, I'm not in the media business, and I don't really know what happens on the inside. And it matters to me what people who do know what happens on the inside think. Of course, not everyone will agree with them. Of course, others will push back. But that's the point. Speak the truth, as you understand the truth. As Abraham Lincoln said, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Batya's challenge to the American Jewish community and to its leadership is compelling and cutting. I'm part of that leadership, and I welcome all opinions on my and our inadequacies. It's the only way to improve. Batya contended that there is a real crisis of moral authority in the Jewish community. She urged us not to stifle those feelings of right and wrong. It's what Judaism is all about. Our 3,000-year tradition seeks to give us the tools to be able to distinguish between right and wrong. We will not always agree on every moral principle, and more to the point, we will often disagree on the best ways, the best policies to advance these moral principles. But putting moral behavior and expectations front and center is the Jewish way. So, for example, we will continue to debate the best ways to achieve racial harmony in America. We have a very long way to go in this country. But from a Jewish perspective, the principle of evaluating others through the exclusive or primary prism of race is un-Jewish. Batya is right about that. We are commanded to judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Do we not all have one father preached the prophet Malachi? Did not one God create us? 
why then do we break faith with one another? Third, I love Jews who stick up for Jews, who refuse to look away. Batya spoke about how Jews need to find their voices and to stop siding with those who demonize us. She's right about that. It's the reason that our synagogue pulled out of the women's marches. We supported the cause. We just couldn't stand alongside the leaders of that movement who sought to dismantle the world's only Jewish state and who were prepared to accept our support only if we abandoned our own people. There were always those who harbored animosities against our people. It is not a new phenomenon. It didn't take the form of enmity against the Jewish state because we didn't have a state for 2,000 years. But every generation of Jews experienced the discomfort of standing against the mob. Sometimes it's hard to be Jewish. Study Jewish history. For some reason, God has decreed a rocky and thorny road for our people. Looking back through the centuries, it has been a long, hard, tragic march from Sinai. But the journey has also been filled with exhilarating accomplishment, transcendent meaning, and noble purpose. I hope you feel this, sense this, and are empowered by it. I hope that you too will do what our ancestors did. Walk the long and winding Jewish road with faith in the ultimate redemption of our people and all people. Until next time, this is In These Times.